History lesson number 97, Rabbi Bleiweiss. So uh, we left last night talking about Rav Chaim of Lozhen. So a close colleague, roughly corresponds to Rav Chaim's dates, was Rav Avram Danzig, who was the Chaye Adam. That's how he's known, either the Chaye Adam or by his other parallel work, the Chochmas Adam. Uh, you should think of the Chaye Adam. Is that a familiar name to you? Semi? He was the, his generation's equivalent of the Mishnaburah. Not many years before. I mean, he's uh, a couple generations before uh, the Rudd the, the, the Chaim, but um, it, we're already approaching modernity, if you can believe it. Um, and that's why we're going to be slowing down considerably because there's, there's a lot more to convey if our objective is to be reached to try to give some kind of explanation to why the Jewish people looks like it does today. Um, there are a lot of, lot of details to fill in, a lot of blanks to be filled in. So Rav Avram was 14 years old when his father sent him from Danzig um, to Prague. Uh, where did, who, did, who did he learn under in Prague, of course? It's a name that's come up many times in the last few days. Who's his, who's his great Rebbe? The Rav of Prague, the Nodeb Yehuda, we've heard quite a lot about. Um, the, the father, of course, was interested, you know, he was from Danzig in Germany and he wanted to get him away from all those um, modernists who'd been influenced by Moses Mendelssohn. Not that for my son, right? He wanted a good traditional education. He was a Rebbe in various different posts, which we find is really common in these days. When we, when we talk about the Malbim, who's, gonna, who's coming up soon enough, uh, the Malbim had, I think, 15 different jobs in the course of his uh, professional lifetime. Uh, it was a lot, not, not an easy life for, for, uh, for a lot of our gedolim, a lot of the people that, that um, history would shine uh, lights on very favorably, but in their days, they suffered a lot, and the Balabatim didn't always uh, treat them with the respect that they deserved. Um, so he had, he had different jobs. Eventually, he became the Dayan of Vilna, Dayan being a chief uh, you know, judge, Bastin. Um, his works are famous till today. He wrote the Chaye Adam on the Orachaim section of the Shulchan Aruch and the Chochmas Adam on Yoridea. The goal was, it's an, it's an interesting approach. He, he writes in um, units, meaning it's, it's not one of those works that you learn around the daf of the Shulchan Aruch, but rather it's a self-contained work where he quotes to you all the relevant information, but it's very much, it's written with the layperson in mind, that that, uh, that any person should be able to pick it up and have immediate access to practical halacha. Again, we see this, this, this development really over time of increasing concern that the average man should be able to know how to keep all of the Torah and the closer we get to modernity, we see the more elaborate this gets which I think reflects the fact pretty clearly that um, the people were just that much more ignorant, more so than ever, and they needed everything to be spelled out for them. Um, I think that's especially true in the 20th century that we have a proliferation of books on virtually every halachic topic in the sun, and now, of course, the internet providing much information for people. Be, beware, though. Be, beware. Not all of it is, is uh, certainly a lot of it is not uh, reliable. You have to be very skeptical in finding your sources correctly. But the, uh, I say that, of course, as I'm, as I'm posting my own stuff on the internet. So nobody should trust me. 
Uh, but that's true. I mean, listen, I make, I make mistakes, and everybody does, and you have to have a reliable source as best you can. And one of the reasons why I like to give this over in repetition is that the more I do it, the more likely I can correct um, mistakes or distortions, which is certainly what a, a Torah Jew should be striving to do throughout his life. In any case, in any case, so he writes this book, Masterwork, um, that uh, um, conveys an extraordinary amount of, of information in, in clear um, prose that the average person can relate to. His um, colleague, Rav Chaim of Elozhen, who was usually critical of what he called halachic digest. It's not an original criticism. We've heard this before, too. The, the, the reduction of the vast body of halacha to um, simple code, losing a tremendous amount of the humanity and the process and the complexity and the individual application of the halacha. So, so you know, he, was, he had a problem with that. Um, but interestingly, in this case, um, he wrote a haskama, which is very rare. Like, his, like the Vilna Gaon, Rav Chaim rarely wrote any endorsements of any books, but the Chaya Adam and the Chochmas Adam were exceptions. He, um, he wrote on condition, though, that each section had to be cross-referenced to the Shulchan Aruch. So the message to the student is, here, if you like this idea or you're confused by this idea, go look it up. Meaning, the buck doesn't stop here. You have to be able to trace this to its origins and follow it to a deeper conclusion, um, which is the goal of Torah learning. Um, I think my colleague Rav Lieber, for example, has a strategy of planting these hard questions as, as we hear that with much the same in mind, that people shouldn't go home and say, hmm, I got that Daf Gemara, check. Now cross that off my list. Quite the contrary, we should be... Um, stimulated and intrigued and try to take it to ever deeper levels and that's why we always say when we finish a parak or a sefta hadrin alecha because we're just getting started we have to return and return and return so with, with that in mind that the uh, that the chokmas adam was written in this way the chayadim was written this way um, he also Rav Chaim was uh, consulted in the preparation of the chokmas adam together with another great name that I'm going to mention the nesivos uh, tremendous generation as well uh, in, in, in the early early um, 1800s. Um, one of his uh, interesting, widely accepted uh, piske halacha was prohibiting magic and magic acts. Um, even apparently, even the idea, and there's some post who are lenient on this, but even implying that um, if the magician gives away his secrets before even doing the trick, which if you've ever been to a magic show, kind of ruins the show, but even that he finds, he finds um, uh, a problematic after all, um, what, one of the opinions in the Gemara is that um, Lola Onen is indeed um, sleight of hand. That's one of, that's one of the definitions of Lola Onen, is, is, is um, conveying something or misleading people to think that what you're doing uh, is some kind of magic act when you're really tricking them. Um, he has another psaac that says that um, a person who reads a pasuk in a foreign language in a certain way over a wound or a baby, clearly bringing down a superstition, or alternately puts a Sefer Torah or Tefillin on a youth in order that, they, that, the, that the child should go to sleep, um, is over, it transgresses a similar prohibition. It's, in this case, it's not Lola Onin, but rather Lola Nachesh, uh, usually brought in the same place in the Torah in the discussion in Shas. Um, he says such a person, in other words, who employs superstitions, and apparently that was common back in those days. It's also common today in our rational industrial society. People are incredibly superstitious. Um, and um, he said the person's not only over on Lola Nachesh, but he's a kofir, he's a heretic. Um, he, in other words, advocated simple emuna. what we have to do is fulfill the pasuk, to be pure of emuna with, with, uh, with, with our faith. 
Um, the Chai Adam wrote a very famous tefillah that most people say on right as we go into Kol Nidre called the Tefillah Zaka um, on, on the evening of Yom Kippur. Is that familiar to you? Okay, commonly said. Um, he actually is one of these personalities, we said, like, like the Prima Gaudim, who we don't hear about, even though he lived in times of immense, let's say, political intrigue and so on. He wasn't involved in, in, on that level in the Jewish people. He simply was one of these individuals who said little and did quite a lot, and his impact is, is certainly uh, great till today. Um, a couple other personalities along, along the same lines, other, other, other Gedolim who were immense Torah personalities whose sparring today dominate kolels around the world. Um, one is named Rav Ayilefa Cohen Heller. Um, anybody recognize the last name Heller? We've, yeah. we've met another Gadol by the with the last name. You're so good. Tosos Yantin. Remember the student of the Maharal who wrote the commentary on the Mishnah. Is he related? Yes, but he is a fourth generation descendant of the Tosos Yantin. So correct, good good connection to make. Um, he is known by his sefer, the Ktsos, he's called the Ktsos, or in longer terms, the Ktsos HaChoshen, which is a commentary on the Hoshen Mishpat section of the Shulchan Aruch. In his case, he actually was an outspoken misnaget, very, very anti uh, this new Hasidish movement. Um, but the Hasidim, for their part, venerated him and held by his Torah, I mean, how couldn't she? He was a gadol. And so even though he was sharp in his criticism, they accepted, of course, his Pesach Halacha. Um, the Ketosa Choshen um, and the Nesivos, which is the next, the next Acharon that I'm going to describe to you very briefly, um, are considered probably uh, the, you know, among the main commentaries that you would learn if you learn the Choshen Mishpat. Uh, today, the Choshen Mishpat is usually relegated to the highest level or one of the higher level um, kolels after people have already mastered Orachayim and Yeridea, people may get to the, might achieve uh, you know, greatness in, in learning the Koshin Mishpat. Um, but if you do, the Ketsos and the Nesivos are, are, are really uh, are, are staples in terms of how you learn. Um, the, the Ketsos also wrote a book on Halacha called the Shev Shmaisa. The Nesivos, his full name is Rav Yaakov Lorberbaum. He's sometimes referred to as Rav Yaakov of Lisa or by his other sefer. He wrote a sefer on the Orachayim called Mukor Chaim. He wrote another sefer called the Imre Yosher on Chumash. Um, but I think more commonly he's known as the Nesivos. When um, my, my uh, friend Rabbi Yehuda Fried and I were thinking of start, when we started a program taking yeshiva students to Europe and we were trying to come up with a good catchy name, um, it occurred to me, why not use the Nesivos as a name since after all, Nitivot means pathways. And we're traveling, and of course, going in the pathways, our, our vision was to not just visit concentration camps, but actually to walk in the pathways of the Gedolim, try to see the world that was, that was destroyed in the Shoah. Um, and we thought Nesivos would be a great name because it's such a yeshivish, when people, we wanted to convey that this is a very yeshivish program. And you hear the Nesivos, you think, oh, that's stark. And that's the association that people have with this. So that's what I'm trying to give over to you. You, sh you, sh you, should, you should be familiar with this. He also had great yichas. He was the great-grandson of the Chacham Tzvi. Remember the Chacham Tzvi, one of the earlier uh, uh, rapidly anti-Shaktai Tzvi uh, um, personalities. Um, and that made him, the, by a different uh, child of the Chacham Tzvi, the great-nephew of Rav Yaakov Emden. Um, and he grew, up, he grew up, he was raised by another relative of his, the Prima Gaudim. So that's what we call an excellent pedigree, right? If you can, can, you can trace yourself back to all of these gedolim. He, um, he too, like the Ksos, was uh, 
did get politically involved. He was uh, he was a you know an advocate of tradition, and he fought the Enlightenment. He fought the New Reform Movement, which we'll, we'll discuss with Joshua Sen today. Um, so, it's a very productive time for Talmud Chachamim for great halachic works uh, to be to be uh, that were written. Um, it's also, as we revisit now, already what can be considered the, maybe the second, third generation of Hasidim. It's a time of some interesting personalities. I'll describe one. Um, others will emerge. Um, this one is known to you. His name is Rav Nachman of Breslov, sometimes referred to as Bratslav. Um, and I'll, I have a... I have what maybe some would say, listen, my, I'm sure one way I can, we can criticize my presentation here is it's distorted. Some things I give lots of attention to, other things I give very, I mean, right now, for example, I gave, I gave just a few minutes on the Ketos and the Sivos. I can see reasonably another class on the, of this nature going into great depth, greater depth of the Ketos and the Sivos. Um, I, I, maybe I'm elaborating on Breslov right now because, and Rav Nachman right now, because there's a certain impact in the world, and I think there's a lot of confusion around it, and I hope to add to that confusion. That's my that's my intention. I try to consider myself the troublemaker. I don't really I don't mean to resolve all the problems, but at least I can raise the issues. Um, the Rav Nachman was a great grandson of the Baal Shem Tov. Um, so, in terms of the Baal Shem Tov's descendants, arguably he's the most famous, or certainly one of the most famous. Um, he was. Um, he came, the Baal Shem Tov's daughter was Udel, her daughter was Fega, and Fega's son was Rav Nachman. Uh, he, in his lifetime, attracted thousands of followers, but really, and the reason why maybe to spend a little more time on him, is that he attracted many, many more, tens of thousands and arguably even more, after his life, um, and is unique. In, in, in the history of, of, uh, of Torah uh, for, for the following reasons. Um, first, his own mystique, even from a, from a very young age as a child, he was a um, rare kind of a personality. He was an ascetic, an ascetic Hasidic, if you must. The, uh, but you don't have to if you don't want. The um, ascetic meaning he was, he avoided ta'anuge olam hazet. He was somebody who did not look for pleasures in this world which is pretty unusual for a child. Most kids are all about treats. I even had an inside joke with my kids. Uh, you know, they just get so sometimes distracted with discussions of treats. I, I, sometimes they'll talk to me and, and I can't even understand them anymore. And I play back to them the way they sound to me. I said, you know what you just said to me? You said blah, 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 treats. That's what, that's what they talk about, right? But here's a child, an unusual, precocious, precocious young person who's not interested in treats or any pleasures of this world. He, um, from a young age, learned intensively. He davened nightly by the grave of his altar, Zaydi of the, of the Baal Shem Tov. He was one who toiled in the mikveh regularly, the central, central facet of Breslav, not just Breslav, but certainly Breslav. Um, in his own personal life, which was short, he lives between 1772 and 1810, another one of these uh, very impactful personalities who lived very few years. Um, he traveled to Eretz Yisrael as a young man. He was, uh, he was 26 years old in 1798. When he came, um, he was actually, this is one of those tour guide footnotes. I don't get to guide Akko as much as I wish I could. It's a lot to say in Akko. But one, one little factoid that I like to give over when I'm standing inside the city walls is when Napoleon Bonaparte made it as far as Akko, Napoleon, part of his plans were to conquer Eretz Yisrael from the Ottomans. He almost succeeded. Uh, he destroyed Yafo, among other, among other places, and he made it as far as Akko, and then he was repulsed 
by one of the uh, by one of the ferocious Arab uh, uh, governors and, and warriors. Um, but when he set when Napoleon set siege to Akko, Rav Nachman happened to be there and was inside the city at the time. Interesting. Uh, let's see, meeting of different historical personalities in the same place. He um, when he traveled to Tzfat and to uh, Tveria, he was warmly received by the. The Hasidim, you remember that in 1777, uh, about 20, 21 years earlier, the Hasidim had started making Aliyah, and now there were, there were Hasidic centers there. It sounded like the great-grandson of the Baal Shem Tov is here, and, and it was cause for celebration. If you think of Rav Nachman, um, you would think perhaps of the ideas of Dvekus, which is an idea we developed, talking about Hasidus, clinging to Kaddish Baruch in every one of your activities, um, one also would think about this notion, when we mentioned before, going out to the field, to the forest, in, in, in isolation, to uh, deepen oneself, to deepen one's connection to Kaddish Baruch um, He emphasizes learning. He also emphasizes, and this you could say maybe is distinct, especially since uh, the Hasidic world did some controversial things with regard to learning, it was Rav Nachman's teaching that um, one had to focus on punctiliousness, care in Shmiras Mitzvos, by way of the Shulchan Aruch. Okay, that was, that's, that's an important voice to be heard too in the, in, the, in the big scheme of things. Not all the Rebbe's were talking about the Shulchan Aruch to the same degree. He has a tefillah associated with him called the Tikkun HaKlali, very famous tefillah, which is, uh, which is ten specific Tehillim, that are recited daily. Um, the purpose is, among other things, but centrally the purpose is to overcome the um, immense transgression of spilling seed, what's called shikhvas zera levatala, which today is certainly a, um, a standard um, tefillah and a focus for Breslav. Um, often one hears some of the great teachings of Rav Nachman. He had a way um, with... Um, conveying a simple idea in a profound way, and I think that that's something, if you consider his appeal today, which is widespread, um, we're actually just down the street from one of, with, with the central Breslav um, yeshiva in Yerushalayim, the Rosh Yeshiva is a well-known personality in Rav Shalom Arush. Familiar? Okay, fine. There, and, and it draws people. It seems to have a, a particular appeal to Israeli Sephardi Balichuvah. Interesting. Not only, but uh, Breslov, I don't think, for example, has caught on quite so much in America, not to the degree that it has in Israel. But, um, but one of the reasons is that he has uh, deep ideas, much of which are conveyed in the Likute Maharam, which is a collection of his teachings, um, that are conveyed and worthy of quoting frequently. For example, um, there's one <laughs> statement, Kol ha'olam kulo geshut sar me'od ikar lo klal, that Rav Nachman actually never said. And you knew I was going to do that, right? Um, but it's a distortion of what he taught. He actually teaches um, that a man has to cross, not that the whole world is a narrow bridge, but that a man has to cross a very narrow bridge. Very, very narrow. The key is not to make oneself afraid. I've mentioned this before. I've talked about this. Ooh, I'm going to do this in Sfas tomorrow or the next day or something. So maybe we'll keep it for that because... Yeah, Rav Nachman is very big in Tzvass and, and we're discussing, but, uh, but I'll, do it, I'll do it very briefly. Um, 
you tell me to walk from point A to point B over there, I can do that. Um, now, if you tell me that was easy, huh? Um, too easy. Now, if you lift that exact um, path that I just walked um, on level ground and you elevate it in the air, I don't know, 50 miles or so, and you tell me, go do that again, now, of course, it appears to me like a bridge, narrow bridge. Um, in theory, I should be able to do it. shouldn't be so difficult. Um, the problem is that we're mitpachtim, which is a dip, which is not lefachikal, it's lehitpachet. We make ourselves afraid. We put up all kinds of walls between ourselves and reality, when in fact, much of our avoda, much of what we can be doing in this world is accessible and doable to us. We just kind of write ourselves off and say, oh, I can't do that. I'm not good at this. My whole shtick that I keep focusing on and learning from failures, and my, what I said in the soapbox in the room the other day in the Gemara Shear about how when people, we all fail, right? Raise your hand if you failed before. Okay. A higher. Yeah, but we all fail, right? There are two kinds of failures. The more common kind is, I'm not good at this. Forget it. The second kind, and obviously the preferred kind, and I think an extension of this teaching is, ooh, I messed up on that. What were the correct answers? Let me get this for the next time. The best way to learn. You know how much you retain from your failure? So that's it. He says, the world is a narrow bridge. Don't, don't make yourself afraid. Don't put up unnecessary stumbling blocks. He teaches elsewhere, Everything about me is going to Eretz Yisrael. Very focused on, 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 on going to Eretz Yisrael. He taught that a person should observe mitzvahs lochumra, stringently upon himself and be moderate with others. Always assume that the other guy can do something lenient, kind of like a Derek Rebbe. Also true. It's, it's, it's actually consistent with most of Chazal. You see this with Poskim in general, that they're stringent on themselves and lenient with others. And Reb Nachman said that that should be your, your own MO, your own modus operandi. He rejected the notion, and this is very radical in Breslav, and uh, a lot of Hasidim had problems with Reb Nachman. He rejected the whole concept of a Hasidic dynasty nepotism, that somehow, you know, uh, that, that just because your father was a Rebbe, you, you somehow deserve to be or were worthy of being called a tzaddik, he said quite quite, quite differently, and this is one of the reasons why, why Breslov is distinct today, is he believes that every Jew could be a tzaddik. And if that's true, then what difference does it make if you're the son of a tzaddik? Um, towards this end, he encouraged a person seeking the positive in, a per in yourself, um, you can see how this really appeals to our low self-esteem generation. He was very much about building the self up, um, seeing the good in other people, being loving and generous. He said, don't be a fanatic in anything. What you should do is grow gradually. And of course, above all else, do it the simcha, as Rav Nachman probably most famously said, mitzvah gedolios besimcha tamin. It's a big mitzvah. It's a variation of Chazal. These are not chidushi. These are old ideas rendered in pithy, um, catchy, uh, new ways that caught on. Now, the attractiveness, here's where I get critical. And my criticism, I'll preface it like saying, saying like this, I don't know, I'm not quite sure, I haven't worked this out yet. I've spoken to some people who defended Breslov. And I felt that their defense actually did the opposite than defended. I thought that they made the case stronger against, not against it. Here's the way I like to formulate it. Rav Nachman is clearly accepted um, 
as, 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 a, as an unusual great personality. He's quoted, for example, widely by many litfish, non-Hasidic poskim, from the Mikhtar Miliahu to the Tzitz Eliezer, the Shevet Alevi, and a long list of big names refer to him, indicating that clearly on some level he's accepted, and especially with the, in light of the ideas I just quoted to you and I gave over, this idea that, wow, you know, there's really, uh, there's, there's, there's immense Torah and inspiration to be derived. So it's the following teachings that are brought down in the Likutei Moharan, and there's some who are apologetic and try to defend them. I haven't really heard the defense very effectively, um, and I just don't get it, is the way I like to say it. It doesn't really make sense to me. Um, these things are hard to reconcile, and I'll let you be the judges and figure it out for yourselves. I'll share my own quandary over them. Um, it, certainly, according to many, uh, many Misnagdim, and even many Hasidim, some of his teachings may border a Vodazara or a Vizraya de Vodazara. Um, so, um, there is, I'm quoting the Kutei Maharan, and um, he, he teaches, Hatzadik Shomea Kol Anachot Shal Bo. A lot of the teachings emphasize the centrality of the Tzadik, which seemed to be a reference to himself. And the Tzadik, he says, hears all the sighing and the groaning of those who cling to him. Um, because from him are the results of life for each individual. So that's that's a hard one to parse. Uh, usually we talk about we only talk about Tzvekas with regards to Kadosh Baruch Hu. Now referring to the Tzaddik as the one that we should cling to, again uh, elevates the Tzaddik well way above and beyond um, propriety. That the results should be in, in, in an inadequate defense. Somebody who has significant knowledge of Torah, but did an inadequate job, in my opinion, um, to defend him. If you're interested in this, I can give you more on this. Um, I don't want to spend too much time on this, just to convey the idea. Um, he said that when he speaks about the tzaddik, he's really speaking about um, a lot, and he's not referring to himself, rather than um, what the real idea is trying to convey is that uh, living tzaddik is better than learning Torah from a, closed, from a, from a book. Because, you know, you get the book and you get a certain dry, uh, you know, facet of halacha hashkafa. You talk to a real-life tzaddik, whoever that may be, whatever times you're living in, and you get the real um, nuanced ideas of Torah. Uh, that's certainly true. Clearly, Rav Nachman is writing about that in a couple of places. But, like, for example, in this last quotation, he's not referring to modes of learning. He's saying that, this, that the tzaddik apparently has powers to hear certain uh, supplications of those who cling to him. Kind of like Jesus, it sounds like. Uh, and from him are the results of life for everybody. I'll give you some more. Um, the tzaddik ha-emes, he refers to often the true tzaddik, um, which again seems to be in many places at least a, refer a reference to himself. Certainly, even if he didn't mean it as a reference to himself, many, if not most of his followers, or many of his followers at least, do believe that it's a reference to himself. Um, <coughs> um, he says that tzaddik emes is the source of all goodness, one who draws close to, only by drawing close to him can one achieve success in material and spiritual ways. If you're not close to the tzaddik, you can't achieve that kind of success. It's a prerequisite. Um, elsewhere he writes, a person should make vidui, should confess before the tzaddik so that he'll um, get full atonement. Again, in normative Judaism, we, every place where he's writing a tzaddik, it sounds like we would substitute the name Hashem. That's what's seems to me clearly questionable. Don't know what to make of these lines. Um, and, and the fact is that, that there are 
breast lovers alive today who really understand it this way. I mean, today also one would get the impression that there's been only one great Jew in the last 200 years. His name was Rav Nachman. It is. It's a variation. It's not my joke. It's a well-known joke. They tell the joke too. How many breast lovers did it take to screen a light bulb? None. There was one, but it burned out many years ago, and there's been none to replace it ever since. So, that, but that's that's really a reflection of this. Um, elsewhere, he writes, "Can a person ever make tshuva?" He said, I, I, "Again, maybe I'm, mis- I, I'm probably misunderstanding. It's hard to understand, but I'm quoting it. It says, "Only I. I'm translating here. Only I can make tshuva for you. Only I can fix what you've corrupted. Somehow, a person's dependent on the tzaddik to fix himself." Um. You came in, you missed, you missed the whole important introduction to this discussion. You came in at the worst possible time, just, just as a caveat, because I gave a whole preamble of how uh, immense and, and, and impactful, how, and how, how incredible. I mean, I don't know about you, I, th- I find the first part incredibly inspiring, right. which makes all this very hard to understand. Can you talk like, a bit about the Yeah, by the payas. That's another famous one. I'm not there. I'm not there. I, I have this, I have, this is just a, let's say, Highlights or main issues involved. It, I, I'm considering putting together a sheer, you know, have my like my units, like I did my Chabad and everything. Considering doing it and, and teaching it, I'll tell you, I'm 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 debating it whether I want to do it or not, because you get up and you speak in a group like in Derech, and you say over these ideas, and people hear it, they don't hear it. I come off sounding like I'm, you know, I like to put everybody down and bash everybody, which I'm really not interested in doing. My, you you know, my interest is just to understand every aspect of the Jewish world, and just to get MS. Um, and the people should, should, should try for that too, but the message is lost. It just sounds like I'm, I'm breast love bashing, which is not my interest. So that's why I'm not sure. On the other hand, I think it's an important topic to address, and most people don't. And there's a lot of confusion out there, and I, I, I don't know. I wouldn't recommend people go that way. There are a lot of ways of going into Torah. As much as there's so much that's inspiring in breast love. Let me continue. Um, he, he writes elsewhere, All deeds of the, of the tzadik emes, are the deeds of Hashem, Ba'atzmo, Kihu Bichlau Bo Yisbarach, whatever this means, he is included or is part of Hashem, Yisbarach. Elsewhere, he teaches that a person should give one's money to the tzaddik, which is not an original idea. We saw this in other aspects of Chassidus, the whole notion of the kvitlach, and like very much sounding like the Christian, uh, the Christian rite of um, indulgences, where you give your money to the tzaddik. Um, this is just a, there's more. You, t- you talked about the peos. There are, I've got a few more bits as well. Um, the Chafetz Chaim said the original cherem that we learned about two days, two classes ago, that was signed by the Vilna Gaon against Hasidim in general, by the days of the Chafetz Chaim, he said um, that that no longer pertains, except to Chabad and Breslov. That's not something the Chafetz Chaim wrote. It's something he said to his famous Talmud Chacham son-in-law, Rav Zaks, and it's well known in some circles. I've checked it out. In Brisk, Kolel, which is one of the top Kolels in the world today, it's commonly known. Uh, the Briskerov knew this idea from the Chafetz Chaim, and other, other, other Rabbanim had received this as part of a, an oral tradition. The Chafetz Chaim said this, but it's not written. Um, so. Take that as you as 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 you will, and understand Chabad and Breslov are forces to reckon with today, and to try as best you can to see the. Uh, what I encouraged when I talked about Chabad was that you should think complexly. Do they do fantastic things that you and I are not doing? I personally am not offering a Pesach seder for um, wandering backpacking Jews in the mountains of Nepal. Are you? 
but somebody in Chabad this year is. So you can see the immense good that they're, that they're doing and somehow simultaneously see the tremendous problems inherent in certain aspects of certain groups of their movement. And like I say, think complexly. Like a sophisticated Jew. A few more bits from Rabbi Nachman that are hard for me to understand. Um, he has another famous bit of Ika, as much as he emphasizes Simcha, he says, he has this line, Ikar ha-simcha mile dishtusa. And then he adds, the main quality of simcha is through words of nonsense, which are defended. There are a few statements in Chazal, we saw them as well. Rabbi used to start his shirim, Laurentinus, with Mili, or Shabbos, with Mili de Bitichusa. Others, Laurentinus, about a similar idea. There is something about silliness. Uh, Rav Nachman taught he was in favor of clapping hands, singing, and dancing. And now I'm getting to the popular Nananach. Uh, which I'm going to get to later on, um, but not, not right now. But this was Rav Nachman's teaching. Um, he said this, you should sing and dance, especially during and after davening. You, the, the goal, of course, was coming closer to Hashem with, with Simcha. Uh, apparently, he himself struggled with depression, so this was a central issue for him and for many people who are drawn to him. Today, it's interesting, one finds um, a lot of the Bresla Bali Chuba tend to come from have had hard lives, for example, it's known that there are a lot of former criminals who get turned on and become Bali Chuba, which is wonderful. But there is something about depression and simcha as, as an underlocking, under, under, underlying theme. Yeah, go ahead. Is this related to the Hasidic idea of, like, what you're dominating? Certainly, it's coming from that. This is distinct to Breslau. There's a certain variation on that. Well, when you said nonsense, you meant, like, just, like, goofy. Goofy nonsense. Well, that's what's debated. That's what's debated in Breslau today. I would say the major figures of Breslau, but there's no, like I said, there is no one authoritative figure. That's one of the problems with the movement, because nobody can say definitively what Rav Nachman actually meant, even though many of them would say that it's not, um, it's, I mentioned this yesterday, the, the Chil Hashem, people who, you know, blast their music and run out in the middle of the street and, and, and behave in a, in a way that um, represents Torah in a, in a, in a self-mocking light. That 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 is, is is clearly problematic. Yeah. What is with all the graffiti that they always put up? Also, that's um, I, I'm going to get to modern Breslov later because right. Breslov, like right. everything, like everybody develops. So I'm right now sticking to Rav Nachman's original teachings, and and we'll see how this will move on. Um, he elsewhere encourages people to speak to Hashem. I'm going to quote him: "Kidaber ish el reehu," like a man speaks to his friend. Another problematic line that I can't figure out, and it's—I'd love to, you know—I I, I hope I'm misunderstanding it. Um, it's very hard for me to make sense of isn't the Gemara that, in Megillah. Isn't that published in Kisifa that Hashem spoke to Moshe right? That's to Moshe Rabbeinu, who's, who's unique in prophecy. He spoke Dabar, he's, He had the highest level of prophecy through Aspaklaria Hameira. That's not like the common person, and, and in doing that, he was speaking to convey the Torah and prophecy. Not, um, uh, what do you think? Do you think I should buy the, um, the, the tangerines today? Or what? I was thinking about the green apples. That's where Rav Nachman tries to bring him down to this very individual, like buddy or a therapist kind of level. Um, the Gemara in Megillah teaches, Rava teaches there that. Um, he criticized the possibility in davening that a person should repeat the words of Shema if he didn't have good kavana. That's where the discussion is. Which if a person didn't have kavana, should he repeat them? And 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 Rava asks rhetorically, Chavrusa klape shmaya. 
what we're supposed to be like we're having a chabrusa with the Kodesh Baruch that we can go back and keep repeating ourselves Rabbi says rhetorically and critically and Rashi clearly explains there what we're supposed to treat a Kodesh Baruch like a friend we should dab in front of him without kavana like we you know oh whoops I'm sorry I wasn't paying attention while you were speaking to me we do that with the, that's what we should be able to Kodesh Baruch Hu. sounds like this is a contradiction um, and it's not just the Gemara and the Rashi there the Halacha contradicts this Based on another Gemara Brachos, the Shulchan Aruch brings down explicitly Hashem is exalted. He is beyond you. He's not your buddy, buddy. Um, in 1802, Rav Nachman moved to Breslav in the Ukraine. Um, it was there that a student transcribed his Likute Maharan. That was his legacy when he was 48 years old. He died of tuberculosis while he was visiting Uman. And he's buried there in a cemetery, interesting cemetery there, um, it, together with 20,000 um, Jewish martyrs, Kedoshim, who were murdered, uh, uh, or murdered earlier that, cent- that, that uh, century in 1768, what was called the Heidemach Massacre. You realize in history now, I don't even bother mentioning a lot of the massacres that happened because it's just, it's just so regular and commonplace. They don't even make the news. So 20,000 Jews had happened to be killed um, not quite a half a century earlier, and in the same graveyard, uh, Rav Nachman is buried. Um, changing gears drastically, uh, let's go visit the students of the Vilna Gaon, whatever happened to them. So um, they're often referred to collectively as Prushim, representing the high, one of the highest levels of the um, Braisa, that's the basis for the Misilas for Yisharim, the, um, for the paths of the just, the paths of the righteous. Uh, the Ramchal, and um, Parush is somebody who separates himself from this world, worldly pleasures, much like I described Rav Nachman in his youth and, his, and, and throughout his life. Um, so uh, the Prushim refers to the Gon's disciples who actually make Aliyah, who, who wind up fulfilling their Rebbe's dream. Remember, the Gras set out and for mysterious reasons turned back, uh, but his vision also was to go to Eretz Israel. And in a sense, even though we're changing gears from Rav Nachman, but think about the parallel ideas. Rav Nachman also taught the centrality of Eretz Israel, and here the, the Vilnago students aspire to come back, and of course, in the process, do their best, do their part to bring Mashiach. Um, they come to Eretz Israel in um, three different shifts 1808, 1809, and 1812, and it's tough every step of the way. I don't know if you remember the difficulties, for example, a century earlier, that uh, over a century earlier, that Rabbi Yehuda Chassid, who built, that who had the disaster, he himself died, and the disaster that ensued in what's referred to as the Chorva, the, the synagogue that was destroyed in the middle of what's today the Jewish court in the old city, but they endured every bit of hardship, and it didn't get much easier 100 years later. Um, they began in a, in a suburb of Vilna called Shklov, that's why the famous disciples include Rabbi Israel of Shklov, Rabbi Menachem Mendel of Shklov. Shklov is, a, is, an, out, is an outlying uh, area near Vilna. And you said a descendant of the Vilna Gon paid off the, the debt? No, not a descendant. One of his students, and I'm going to mention him that's now. Right, that's that's right, in this group. Yeah. That's in my little that's section right, now. Right. Yeah. Um, their goal, unmistakably, we're going to go to Yerushalayim and rebuild it as a center of Torah as it's not been, even though there's been Torah in Yerushalayim, Baruch Hashem, but it's not been a center of Torah. Right now, the center of Torah in the world is in Eastern Europe, but um, we're going to rebuild Yerushalayim as it was back in the days. When was it last a center of Torah in the world? We stood there, very good. Kolokavod, in which generation? The Mesifsa Aliyah under 
Rabbi Yochanan and his disciples, and arguably the last uh, um, major major disciple, um, Rabbi Abahu, one could say, maybe maybe Rabbi Yirmiyahu, debatable, but um, it was not, it was true. It was like for a, ble- a brief period, it was certainly a, um, a hub of activity, but it, but it, that also passed with all the misfortunes that befell the Tzvah community. It wasn't a long-term Torah center as they were setting out to create, and honestly, today, without any hesitation, we're going to see how this happens. It's not going to happen just yet, but sometime in the 20th century, it happened. The dream came true. Today, unmistakably, the, the center of Torah in the world <coughs> is Eretz Yisrael. Is Eretz Yisrael. Um, not only Yerushalayim, B'nai Brak is certainly on par these days um, and has been for the last uh, almost, not quite century. Um, uh, but that was a process, and they began the process. Yeah? Would the Sephardim also agree that, uh, that the Torah center was in Europe? We're going to get to the Sephardim, that's debatable. Not uniformly. There is, uh, we're going to see there's a, there's, a, there's a tension between Sephardim and Ashkenazi in the modern era. Um, and and the Ashkenazi will displace them on a certain level. But I, I submit to you, um, and there's Sephard, there's the absolute Sephardim, the Sephardim themselves today are divided on this question. Um, there are those, they're called, I can't pronounce it right ever, the Mishkisnazim or something like that. In other words, they're the Sephardi Ashkenazim, really. I think, for example, our own beloved Rabbi Shushan would. Would, not that I like to introduce anybody to a uh, to, to, to put anybody in a pigeonhole, but he very clearly learned in Ashkenazi yeshivas. He typically can get up and and kvel overseeing the Chavetz Chaim because it's all one world. And, and I, I think that you know he also most people, most people recognize that it doesn't deny. We've been mentioning some of the immense gedolim that come out of the mostly called Sephardi countries. We talked about some of the Yemenites. Yemen, the Rav Shalom Sharabi and, and the Malachi Shlomo from Yemen. Um, we're we're going to come upon. We said we saw the Chida. We saw many, many. Most of the Gedolim of Tzfas were were, were Sephardim, Sephardi refugees. But um, the Torah and the majority of the Jews in the world are now in Eastern Europe. And most of them, many of them, we wiped out, or their descendants will be. But majorities are there, and, and unmistakably, the hub, the the, the hub of Torah. The, the brin, the excitement, and so on, is coming out of the yeshivas that are being created. It's starting to be created with Chaim's yeshiva being, being the flagship yeshiva, but uh, they're going to they're gonna spread. And, and that will be the center of gravity, and people will come from all around the world. If you want to learn Torah, it was simply known in those days that that's where you would go. And where are most of the starting right now, Israel? Um, well, they're scattered more. That's one of the reasons for they're, they're dispersed around um, Europe and the Mediterranean basin and the Middle East and and and, and right. And these days, I'm going to give you. We're ahead of ourselves right now. I want to get to this more carefully, but um, you'll hear that I'm going to give you the demographic breakdown of the world. Um, the Sephardim are definitely in the minority in these days. The overwhelming majority of the Jews then were, were Ashkenazi. Today, it's 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 very it's 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 shifted because today. Um, first of all, much of Ashkenazi Jewry were wiped out, um, and one hears about um, religious Jews. Sephardim are disproportionate, you know, proportionate to their numbers are more religious than Ashkenazim for all kinds of reasons that we can explain There's too. More Sephardi Jews than Ashkenazi Jews. Today? I didn't say that. I said that one hears about them more and gets a, an impression that they're at, maybe even larger than the numbers in the religious world. But that's true because in terms of their own numbers, Sephardim <laughs> are generally. Uh, much, much more religious than Ashkenazi in their hearts and in, 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 in their deepest amuna. Even, you know, that's the, your, your supposedly secular cab driver who says Tehillim by heart. 
because it's, it's in them in a way that uh, Ashkenazi, and we'll see now with the Enlightenment, will, will destroy that in many Ashkenazi Jews and not, not in Sephardi Jews to some degree, and I'm generalizing, but there's truth in these generalizations. Back to the Prussian. Wow, what a tangent. The, um, of course, their goal is to hasten the gathering of the exiles, and they want to they be leaders. Um, they were led by Rabbi Menachem Mendel of Shklov, who's the figure you just referred to, who eventually pays off the debt of, this, of the shul. Um, there is, you can go today to the old city, right next to the Chorva, is, an, is a smaller shul called the Menachem Tzion Shul that's named for him. Um, later, there, uh, others would fo- follow big names, Rav Nassim Nota of Vilna, Rav Yisrael of Shklov. Um, they, you have to imagine this, they're tra- what's going on in Europe in 1808, 1809, and 1812? The War of 1812, the Napoleonic Wars are all, are all raging across Europe, and they're traveling through all this, which means they contend with wars, starvation, many of them die. It took them about one or two years to journey from Europe to Eretz to Palestine uh, by foot, some of them were fortunate to have horses, some were even more fortunate to have wagons, but generally not. And eventually by boat, where they paid off in the last of their saved money to get to Akko. And when they get to Akko, they're not welcoming Yerushalayim. Why? Remember this? No. Right, we still, the Ashkenazim still are in debt to the Turkish landlords, and they won't let Ashkenazim still in Yerushalayim. Right? That's, that's a holdover from the whole story of Rabbi Chassid. Um, so, if you can't go to Yerushalayim, where are you going to go in Eretz Israel? Maybe even for Shabbos. They go to Tzfas. They go to Tzfas. Um, which had not yet fully recovered from a devastating earthquake a half a century earlier in, eight, in 1759. Um, and they're there, and in 1812, soon after their arrival, um, a terrible machla plague came and wiped almost everybody out. Almost many, many perished. They tried to assess the reasons for their bad fortune. They felt it was due to their neglect of Yerushalayim, that if they came there to Israel, they had to go to Yerushalayim. So the survivors moved. And when they got to Yerushalayim, the authorities did not let them in. They were concerned about, they were carrying the plague, so they quarantined them in the area just outside of what we call the Tzitkiah's cave near Damascus Gate today. And they were there for several months before eventually being allowed to move into the city. Um, in 1819, finally, Rav Menachem Mendel was able to raise money to pay off the debt so the Jews could indeed actually live in, live in uh, Yerushalayim legitimately. Um, it'll take all the way until 1864 today until they can rebuild the shul. Um, a quick footnote, after they left Tzfas, didn't get better in Tzfas, uh, the following took place. In 1834, Tzfas was attacked by Arabs. In 1830, Arabs, yeah, local Arabs, not Turks. The Turks were the rulers, but there were Arabs living in the land, and they were attacked by locals, and the Turks did nothing to stop that. Three years later, in 1867, is one of the famous earthquakes that destroys much of Eretz Israel. And what happened in Sfat was the um, land slid down and, and, and simply um, leveled much of Sfat, destroyed much of the ancient cemetery. You can see evidence of the earthquake till today. The um, four synagogues, famous synagogues, would be, would be destroyed in the earthquake. Uh, big legacy there. We'll talk about it when we're there. The, um, and then... Uh, as if salt on the wound, the next year the surviving, the dragon community in Sfat is now attracted by Druze, D-R-U-Z-E, 
who attacked the Jews there. The Jews? Jews yeah, yeah, yeah. The Jews were not always our good friends. Like maybe today we perceive them that way, but that was not the case always in history. Um, one, of the, one of the members of this group deserves to be mentioned in a significant way. I mentioned it before. His name is Rabbi Yisrael of Shklov. His dates are 1770 to 1839. He's considered one of the youngest and last disciples of the Vilna Gaon. He only learned by the, by the Grah for less than a year, but he impressed the Grah, and he won his confidence um, to publish his own commentary on the first two parts of the uh, Shulchan Aruch. And it's, it clearly reflects the teachings of the, of the Vilna Gon. In a very in a short year, he managed to, to master a lot of his Rebbe's teachings. Um, he was with the second group who came to Eretz Israel in 1809. Later, he would travel as a Shadar. Remember what the term means? Shaliach the Rabbanon, one of the fundraisers who went around the world to collect on behalf of the Jews in Eretz Israel. Um, he wrote a very significant work called the Peas Hashulchan. Listen to this. The subject is the mitzvos hatluyos ba'aretz, the agricultural laws in practical halacha. In the book, it incorporates many notes from the Gaon on his own commentary in, in Seder's Zroim. In other words, the Gemaras, the relevant Gemaras. Um, the, the, the Rav Yisrael hoped that by writing this book, it wasn't just a theoretical book, his goal was that they become relevant soon. Think about it. Jews returning to Eretz Israel, they were not yet farmers. That's going to come. But they were anticipating that. And if you're going to be farmers, you've got to know how to keep Shemitah. You've got to know the Chumos and Maestros and the many, many difficult uh, com complexities around the Mitzvahs of Pelis Baaretz. Pesach Shulchan is one of the early uh, works of, of modernity that address these halachic subjects. You remember the classic work of the Shulchan Aruch and most of the commentaries ignore this whole area of halacha. So this, this is, this is a, a, a rare kind of work. Um, really, some, some, some say that it was the first one of the first serious works on the subject since the days of the Kaftar of Ferach in the 1300s, and certainly since the days of the Talmud. Um, it'll anticipate uh, later in the same century, in the end of the 1800s, the Aruch HaSholchan will write a, a more elaborate work called the Aruch HaSholchan He'asi, the future Aruch HaSholchan, because in the future we're all coming back to Eretz Israel along uh, around agricultural laws. Um, or Israel, like many of them, had a, a terrible uh, tragedy. His wife and three of his children died in the epidemic, in the cholera epidemic that I mentioned in Sfas in 1812. Um, he moved to Jerusalem with his one surviving daughter, who died later in an earthquake. That was his life. His legacy is great. Um, by 1857, jumping a little in the future, but since we're talking about the Prushim, I want to just mention this. Um, they were considered the backbone of what was called the Yeshuvah Yeshan, the Old Settlement, which I mentioned a lot when we went to Muscarit Batya a couple weeks ago, right? So the Yeshuvah Yeshan is, um, at this point, grows in Jerusalem to, their numbers are up to 750 members. Um, and they start spreading around Eretz Yisrael with the goal of spreading Torah. And they opened kolos, learning Torah uh, in other cities. They spread the teachings of the Gaon. They're one of the reasons for the spread of the Minaga Gra that we talked about the other day. Um, their institutions, this is a significant point, will become among the first Jewish organized institutions that will be the foundation of uh, many of the institutions later to be embraced by the Zionists and will make up the core institutions of this fledgling state. 
So I, I mentioned this chesed institutions, beaker holding societies, has, uh, you know, makeshift kind of hospitals, hachnasas orchim, hachnasas kala, all kinds of organizations critical for Jewish life to thrive. They will be, in other words, the backbone of a later of the later yishuv, the Jewish settlement. Um, they'll found communities. They'll be the, the main um, pioneers in finding communities outside the classic old city walls. So they're the bulwark, for example, of the first settlement in Jerusalem called Mishkanot Shananim. Uh, they found Petah Tikva. Mea uh, Sharim is set up initially by Prushim and many others. Yes? The, the kolos, though, they were just, uh, they, they were four time kolos, like today, right? Uh, yeah, because that was their livelihood. Meanwhile, well, was it wasn't, no, in other words, Rabbi Yisrael Shlav and other Shadarim went around the world collecting money, and that was the source so of most of their products. It really, it, yeah, it would, maybe didn't quite look like ours today, but they, yeah, they said learned. Yeah, that, that's the image. Um, I, I'm changing gears. I'm sorry, most of many of our Hebrew are not here today because I have big things to say right now, but. Um, I want to talk about now, I, I don't know if it's random that I'm choosing this as the exact moment, when do you start talking about modernity? But since we've clearly rounded the corner and we've entered the 19th century and the Industrial Revolution and all the various revolutions that are following, French Revolution and so on, um, it's, it's worth considering Klal Yisrael at this period. Um, the Pasuk famously tells us, uh, I'll read it, it, I'll read it in, in entirety, it's, it's from Yeshaya. Um, he tells us, "Hakaton yihiela aleph v'atzoir legoi atzum ani Hashem biita achishena." The least of you will become a thousand; the youngest, a mighty nation. I am Hashem. In its time, I will do swiftly. I will act swiftly. It's a major pasuk in the Gemara in Perik Chelik in Sanhedrin that discusses the end of days, and. Um, the, uh, commenting on the pasuk, Chazal tell us, "Beita achishen." Has anybody heard that expression before? It's a common way of referring to the end of days. At its time, I will hasten it. I will bring the end. Daniel, you with us on this? I will bring. I will, I will bring the end with alacrity, with great swiftness. Um, so, first of all, one drasha on this, very famous. When we give our, when we give my last class in this, in this, in this series, we talk about the future days. We'll refer, we'll refer to this. There are two ways, famously, to bring about Geula, our final redemption. Achishena, bringing about swiftly before its time, or Be'ita, remember the two words, Be'ita, Achishena. Be'ita is before its time, that's quickly, coming before we even, you know, we even know it, or Be'ita at its time, which means, um, right, if the Jews merit and make tshuva, if you listen to my voice, then I will give you, then, then you'll be surprised. Hashem will bring the Geula before you even realize it. That's, the, that's what we're seeking. That's what we're trying to do. That's why you're all here this year, learning Torah, no? Right? So that's the, that's the positive vision. Um, the second possibility, also distinct, is a hidden kind of Geula when we don't merit. Uh, and then we'll have to grope to find the redemption, and it'll come when it was supposed to come. Not in the best of circumstances. Well, that apparently is going to happen either way. Oh, no, but the, the impact, though. The impact, the way it goes down, relatively, will be different. Um, Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi in Sanhedrin teaches, Zahu, if they merit, im anane shemaya, with the clouds of heaven, lo zahu, if they don't merit, ani v'rochev al I'll ride on a donkey. Famous, famous image. 
Um, we, the Chazal seem to conclude, are unaware and will not be aware which exact path we're following. Meaning it's possible we're following the former Achishena, it's possible we're following the Be'ita one. Our job is to do our best. Um, there's another way of looking at this. Be'ita Achishena, at its time I will speed it up, speed up the redemption, is that the end of days, and a lot of the Achronim talk about this, life will be sped up unnaturally. In such a way, kind of like one of those old movie stills where everybody's walking with exaggerated swiftness, where um, we can barely catch our, our breath. Progress is so rapid. Last year's gadget is this year's irrelevancy. It's antiquated already before we know it. Does that sound familiar? Any, any world that you know exists the last century or two? Fifty years, we had the plane to go into space. It's, it's incredible, and this is this is all the way up until up until the modern era. Rabbi Hanan Wasserman, who we saw, we, we caught a brief glimpse of in that in that miraculous video just that was just released to the world a couple days ago. If anybody's not seen it, you should you should look at it. Uh, we showed it to the whole yeshiva. So Rabbi Hanan Wasserman quotes his Rebbe, the Chafetz Chaim. We also have that unforgettable footage, uh, the only film that we have of the Chafetz Chaim, at least that's known to us. <coughs> he quotes the Chafetz Chaim commenting on this great pasuk. These days, in a short period, there have taken place massive changes in the world. Events unfold at a lightning pace. It's the Chafetz Chaim describing our life, no? Events unfold at a lightning pace, a sign that in heaven, plans are being made for the ultimate war against the Yetzer. Each of us, each nefesh, has to make its own reckoning. The ikvasa de Meshicha, the footsteps of the Messianic era, the Chavetz Chaim famously predicted, is, is said is close, and the process, as it gets closer, will be accelerated. So if history feels, and it's not just with regards to technology, although that's a nice metaphor to describe it, if history feels like we can barely catch up with ourselves, that's the nature of the Messianic era. Um, point number two about modernity, as, it's, as, as we find it in the last couple hundred years. Um, I'm going to re-emphasize re something, but it's a major insight in history, and I would hope that you take this away from our discussion, so I don't mind repeating it. Uh, repeating it. Uh, I just mentioned it in my Chabrus and the Kuzari, it also was very relevant. Medieval man, before the Renaissance, um, didn't value Olam Hazet. This world, the physical world that we, we lived, was a life of struggle, it was short and miserable. And you be, would be lucky if you got a, you, you managed to grab a couple scraps in order to take them to Olam Haba. It was all about Olam Haba. And people lived like in Dante's infernal, immortal dread of what was going to be in the afterlife. And this world was something you just had to kind of get through. If you did, if life expectancy exceeded 30 or 40, maybe you were lucky in certain parts of the world if you survived the Black Death. Um, the focus, therefore, in the Christian world, certainly the Jewish world, I and mean, that is our focus. We, we say in Pirkei Avos that, um, that this world is a prose door, is a corridor to the next world. Um, I'm exaggerating it, though. We, we say it's a simcha de corridor. In the medieval mind, it was not, the simcha was often lacking. Um, suddenly, with the Renaissance, and especially now with the Enlightenment, with secular humanism coming onto the scene in a major way all over the world, Suddenly, people started looking around, talking about life in the world in general the last 200 years. 
people at the beginning of modernity perceived that, you know what? After all, maybe this world is not so hopeless. Maybe we could improve it. And so the modern man now will take the old equation and invert it. Now, it's not all about Olam Haba. In fact, increasingly, Olam Haba becomes less important and then increasingly um, not real. It's all Olam Hazet, where the Greek worldview of eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we're going to die becomes the dominant view. What's that? Yolo. I don't know what yellow is. YOLO? Thank you, that couldn't be more, more relevant. YOLO is the catchphrase of the day, but it really embodies this, and it's not just today, it's the last 200 years. YOLO, thank you, you only live once. Right, Olam Haba is irrelevant, live it up. Right, let's do it, let's, let's party. I think is the sentiment. Yeah. Um, and that's what it is. That's what they, that's, and, and, and do stupid things. And do stupid things. Once. Okay. Well, that's secular humanism manifest. Um, right? It makes, think about it. This is, this, this is the mindset that makes the American Revolution possible. The Americans were all about, we can, it's the Calvinist spirit. We can take this world and make it better. It's where the French Revolution is going. Liberté, égalité, fraternité. Um, later, communism and socialism will take up the same cause. We're going to improve this world. We're going to make a utopia. People are going to do this. Writing a Kaddish Baruch Hu often out of the picture, we have the power to make our own, uh, our own life better. Um, later revolutions will share a common utopian thread. You find it in banal movements like the feminist movement today. We're going to take society, make it more egalitarian, feminist conscious, all the various civil rights um, movements. Um, and you feel this ethos that we people are stronger, we can do this, we're gonna take the world to a higher level. Um, you cannot be alive in the world, and if you're a religious Jew, even if, even if you're isolated, you cannot be alive in the last couple hundred years without feeling the effects of this worldview. And it'll impact the Jews, it'll impact the movements that they found. Today I'm gonna describe one such level of impact. If you don't know the story, it's a shocking one. Um, Talk about Napoleon Bonaparte and his impact on the Jews. Um, Napoleon saw the Jews as a threat. He was no friend. But, and this is unprecedented, nobody really ever did this in any non-Jewish society like this, even in Spain in the Golden Ages, he allowed the Jews certain equal rights, giving them unprecedented liberties. He was cynical, clearly and eager to capitalize on, he recognized the genius of the Jews, and that they could add to not only the economy of a society, but to the, every aspect of, 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 of society. Napoleon was, about, was out to see, he sought a new kind of a Jew. He had a vision that we could, we could create, you know, not the old smelly kind, the one with those backwards clothes, um, but really a culture irreligious kind, speaking very much to the model of Moshe Mendelssohn that we talked about yesterday. Um, and with this in mind, Napoleon, at his, at his own brainchild, created, recreated, he thought, the great Sanhedrin. Do you know that we had a Sanhedrin in 1807 under Napoleon Bonaparte? Huh. Uh, it lasted from about February to April. And here's a brief story. He invited to the Sanhedrin certain Tamari Chachamim. They had no choice but to join. Uh, the alternatives were, were uh, 
constructive and they, they joined it, you're going to hear their clever addition to the great Sanhedrin. But very self-consciously, he invited maskilim, enlightened Jews, uh, reform rabbis and such. In the end, it didn't amount to much. It made a statement, though. The major statement was non-Jews, we see, would accept Jews if they modernized. That was a powerful, dramatic statement, and it caught on. Um, and that would generate the Haskalah and the ra rapid assimilation, the secularization of many Jews around the world. I mean, you have to understand, how, how did we get to the state that if you have approximately 13 million Jews in the world today, the overwhelming majority are non-Jewish Jews? Right? These are all the, this is all the uh, background to this development. Now, the Sanhedrin issued many rulings, you know, as an authoritative body, but their rulings, and put the word in quotation marks, are clearly assimilationist concessions to the French pressure. Um, they allow intermarriage, which is, you know, that's exactly what Napoleon it's wanted. Okay, it's okay, US war just did that, so. Right, so now intermarriage is official. Uh, you're allowed to do that against the Torah, of course. Um, they, um, they prohibit Jews from um, lending on interest to non-Jews, which is explicitly permitted uh, by Chazal. Um, all the answers that the Sanhedrin reached were the exact ones that Napoleon wanted. Surprise, surprise. Um, it had the guise of a religious authority. There was at least one very famous Gadol involved. His name was Rav David Zinshine from Strasbourg. He wrote a, a commentary in Shas called the Yod David. Um, but it had, of course, reform rabbis, lay, laymen and such. Um, what the Rabbanim did, they sabotaged it. What they did effectively, very effectively, they dragged their feet. They drayed and they left most things unresolved so that in the end it was irrelevant and ignored. The fact of it lingered and its impact would be uh, broad and deep. Um, for the oppressed Jews whose situation was increasingly impossible in the world, no parnasa, constant persecution, their religion was always belittled. Suddenly to be honored by the emperor of the world, that's how Napoleon Bonaparte fancied himself. Um, this was discussed in the furthest village out in Russia, you know, isolated Russia, and they knew about the great Sanhedrin. Now the image came out to the Jews, the illusion now that maybe they actually could have a future life among the non-Jews. Um, so it had an immense impact on the Jews of the world. It also had an impact on the non-Jews, especially the anti-Semites, feeding the idea, the increasing <coughs> canard that's out there in the world, tangible proof that the international Jewish assemblies are seeking Jew uh, world domination. Right? Usually when Jews have prominence in the world, uh, it's used by our enemies against us. The fact that we have three out of nine Supreme Court justices, you can be certain, uh, it makes its rounds among the various anti-Semitic um, literature in the world today. What's that? That's, 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 that's what they like to uh, promote, and the, the great Sanhedrin of Napoleon certainly gave that impression. When Napoleon invaded Eastern Europe, um, one, in, one impact was that it actually, uh, he charmed the, the Russians, the non-Jewish Russians, and even some of the Jews, um, and the Russians from that point became Francophiles. They loved the French. Uh, I was, my favorite brand of literature in Berkeley and in college was Russian literature of the 19th century. You read Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, Gogol, uh, Lermontov, all of them, French is, they all spoke French. And they all, it was all filtered in. That's how you showed you were, you were classy Russian. Um, now, uh, that was the, the general Russia. Most of the rabbis actually resisted the French and supported the Russians. 
the, the, the Balatanya, Rav Shner Zalman, was against the Russians, not because they were loyal to the Russians. The Russians were certainly not our friends, but they, re- they understood Napoleon represents they the end. The right, they supported the Russians against the French because Napoleon right. symbolically represents the end of Torah. If he succeeds, there'll be no more Jews. There'll be no more Jewish Jews. That's, that's, and they were right. You see the end? We've been decimated, not by wars, not by concentration camps. The worst attack on Judaism is, is the secular enlightenment. And, and, and the Gedolim saw that, and so they resisted the French. Um, for the first time after the war, when the, the Russians succeeded in putting, uh, pushing back Napoleon, the Tsar actually relaxed his decrees against the Jews because of their loyalty. Don't worry, it doesn't last long. He'll, he'll, he'll bring them back again and, with a vengeance. Um, there would be some Hasidim like Rabbi Menachem Mendel of Rimenov who supported the French, but he was the exception. Um, without the French invasion of Russia, even though they lost, um, arguably the Haskalah would never have spread, but it becomes a major force. You know there'd be no socialist movement, you know, the Jews, the architects of socialism out in, in Eastern Europe uh, without, without um, the Napoleon, Napoleon's <coughs> um, attempt to conquer the, the Russia. Uh, if it's from this point that the Jews in Russia can no longer be considered isolated, um, Napoleon also her- uh, spells out one, one aspect for the Jews. Under his influence, the Jews are given civil rights throughout Europe. In Prussia, it starts in 1812. Austria follows. Others would follow, too. And that, too, will increase this, what we call the emancipation, uh, the, 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 this process by which the Jews will start to acculturate and assimilate around, around the world. Um, so on, not on Sunday, my apologies to, to my, my regulars here uh, in the back, but on Sunday we won't be here, but Monday, Bezaz Hashem, we'll talk about, I'm going to finally get to demographics and talk about the population explosion that defines the Jewish world in the 19th century. We'll get then, I promised maybe today, but if we can get there to the, Rush, the reform movement, and then we're going to get to Bezaz Cantonist decrees. Okay, have a great Shabbos.